All right, I was gonna move microphones while the video was rolling. I'm gonna do this right here. Okay, all right, here we go. All right, um, if, uh, and this is uh, for all of us, including the back, if for some reason we think the welcome video is ready at the end, we'll show it then. If not, then we'll put it on the uh, Facebook page because there are definitely some announcements you need to know about. One thing that you need to keep in mind, whether the video works or not, uh, we have all of our announcements at lhbc.net backslash the hope, or if you don't remember the hope, just go to the website and you'll find them there and all the details are there. Lots of things happening within the life of our church. All right, um, one of those is we have a 25th anniversary potluck dinner that's coming up and hopefully when you came in and picked up a worship guide, it's right there on the front. It says you're invited to our potluck dinner that's happening on Sunday night, September the 5th at 5 p.m. There are all, 11th, what did I say? Oh my goodness, things are going haywire. Uh, it's happening at 5 p.m. It is on September the 11th, September 11th, all right, 9-11. It's happening on September 11th. It's our 25th anniversary. It's happening at 5 p.m. And uh, you can get this graphic on our website or our Facebook page, and you can text it, email it, or print it out and hand it off to a friend. You can invite people to come be a part of it. You can see the tagline at the bottom, which says, Remembering the past, rejoicing in the present, and hopeful for the future. That's all to the glory of God. That's what we're looking to do. And as we consider our 25 years of history, we want to acknowledge that, that we are a part of a bigger story than just the last 25 years. Like we're grateful for what God has done at Living Hope, but the truth of the matter is God has had a people from day one and he's used those people all throughout history. In fact, this morning as we read through Acts chapter 7, if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open to Acts chapter 7. We'll be looking at this text together. If you don't have a Bible uh, with you, there should be one underneath a chair or in a chair near you. And feel free to take that home with you if you'd like that uh, whenever we're dismissed. Um, but this morning, we read through a lot of the history of God's people. We are a part of this bigger story. And, and on your sermon notes, you'll see that I want to encourage us to learn from our history. Because if we don't learn from our history, then we'll repeat the parts of history that we don't really need to or want to repeat. And really what's going on in the life of Stephen is he's preaching about what happened in the Old Testament. He has a purpose in talking about it, not just telling them the history, but saying, guys, you didn't learn from the history. We've got to learn from the history. And so there's not a whole lot of places to take notes uh, in that section, but you may want to jot some of this down. I'm going to put on the screen, there are six things that we know about the history of the people of God and about who God is. And we see it through all out throughout all of Scripture, and we see it most definitely in this text this morning. And the way that I chose to word it is this, that first of all, God has a chosen people. And those people that he's chosen, he has made a covenant with us, and he has kept that covenant or that promise. And that he has given us his word, and this morning you heard the living oracles of God. He's given us his word so that we may live out this covenant that he's given to us. But you'll also see here that at various times, his people got into issues and problems, and so God sent to them deliverers so that they could rescue those people. And yet, however, when God sent those deliverers, you see that many times his people rejected those deliverers. And then ultimately, they ended up rejecting Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And so these six things, I think, sum up 
verses 1 through 50. And it sums up all of history. And if we're not careful, we'll end up repeating the negative part of this history, and we will just fall in line, and we will just reject the, the word of the Lord, not follow his word. We will reject opportunities to be delivered from our issues and problems, and we'll live in the midst of sin and not avoid sin, and we will just wallow in sin. But God has brought a rescue plan. And that rescue plan is the name of Jesus. So that kind of sets the stage. As we consider the history that was read to us a moment ago, and I'm going to summarize now. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 50 again. But I want you to walk along in your scripture. That's why having a scripture in your hand will be helpful. I want us to think about these six things and see how it repeats itself over and over and over again. In verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest says, all right, Stephen, we got you on trial here. We've laid before you the charges. The charges are that you don't care about God. You're blaspheming his name. You don't care about Moses or the law or the temple. You're not following our customs. You are going contrary to God's plan. We can see all that at the end of chapter 6. However, as Luke tells us in chapter 6, these are false, made-up charges. They just aren't true. And so in verse 1, the high priest says, is this true? And you may find it interesting that he has these charges against him. The high priest says, are they true? And the boy doesn't even defend himself. He doesn't even address the charges that are there. Like, it doesn't appear that he even heard the question. It's an unusual response at face value. It's like, why is he preaching a summary of the Old Testament? I'm glad you asked. We're going to walk through why he's responding this way. But what I want us to see that beginning in verse 2, we see that Stephen attaches himself proudly to the history of God's chosen people. Look in verse 2. His response is, brothers and fathers, hear me. He's showing respect to the leaders by calling them fathers. He's identifying that he is an Israelite as well. He's a Hebrew. He's Jewish. He's saying, I'm a brother just like you are. We are brothers. We're in this together. And then he keeps walking through the passage. We're not going to look at all these verses, but throughout the text, verses 1 through 50, there are 10 times that he says, our father or our father's. So he's identifying, I am one of us. I am one of you. And then there's one verse, one time when he refers to our race. He's identifying proudly of the Jewish heritage that he's grateful that God has placed him inside of. He's not talking negatively about his heritage at all. Rather, he's trying to lift up who God has called his people to be. And then in verses 2 through 8, he spends time talking about their father, Abraham. You'll see there at the beginning, it says that God of glory appeared to Abraham. He's respecting God. He's calling him the glory of God. He, he's saying God is worthy to be worshipped. He is glorious, fantabulous. He's amazing. And he called out, first of all, Abraham. So the story begins in Genesis chapter 11, and he walks us through the rest of Genesis and into Exodus and into Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and just kind of moves forward into Joshua and keeps telling the story, but I get ahead of myself. Verses 2 through 8 is talking about Abraham. 
and how God called Abraham and he took him to Canaan. He took him to his new homeland. He pulled him out of where he had been and sent him to his new place. And yet, in the midst of, I mean, and in this, God said, I'm promising you, I'm making a covenant with you that I will give this land to you and to your offspring. There's only one problem, maybe two problems. Number one, the man is getting close to 100 years old. He's 75. He doesn't have a kid. How is God going to give him this to his offspring when he doesn't have a child? And then secondly, if you look in the text, you'll see that Abraham didn't own any part of the land. It says in verse 5, he gave him no inheritance in the land. In fact, he didn't even own a foot's length. My foot's about 12 uh, inches long. According to what it says here, the man didn't even own that much property. And yet God is promising him the land to him and his offspring, and he has no land, and he has no offspring. Doesn't make sense. Yet, as we saw in those principles, God always keeps his promise, all right? Then God goes on and says, all right, but Abraham, first of all, your people are going to be enslaved. They're going to be sojourners in another land, and that land is Egypt. He says they're going to be there for 400 years. But don't worry, because I'm going to judge that nation, and I'm going to bring your people out of that land, and they're going to come right back here to the promised land. And then he finishes it off at the end of verses 7 and 8 by sealing the deal with a covenant, and it's a strange covenant. I get that, but it's the sign of the covenant, and that is uh, circumcision. So they use circumcision to identify we are the people of God. So we, we see that God has a plan for his people, right? Then we move to verses 9 through 16, and we walk through the life of Joseph. So there's Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, who then had many sons, and one of those sons is Joseph. And we see in verses 9 through 16 that Joseph was sold or rejected by his brothers, and he sold into slavery in Egypt. But I love what it says in the text. It says, but God was with him and rescued him. It says that God showed favor, that, God found, that Joseph found favor in the home of, of, of Pharaoh. And if you know the story about Joseph, you know that he ended up in the home of Pharaoh after he'd been in uh, slavery, and God allowed Joseph to be second in command next to Pharaoh. And the word that is used here, it says that he found favor. The interesting thing about the word favor in the Greek is it's the same word as grace. God laid out his grace for Joseph and redeemed his story. He had been sold into slavery by his brothers, yet God protected him because Joseph was chosen and used him. We see in these verses also there was a great famine in Canaan. There was a famine in Egypt. And so Jacob, who is Joseph's father, who thinks that Jake, uh, Joseph is dead, sends his boys down to Canaan, I mean, sorry, to Egypt, and says, get us some grain while you're in Egypt. And then we find out that Joseph reveals who he is. And because of all of this, the people of God who are in Canaan now relocate into Egypt, and it says there's about 75 at this time. So God's beginning to fulfill his promise, yet please pay attention that promise begins to be fulfilled, not in Canaan. That promise begins to be fulfilled in, of all places, Egypt. Then the largest section is about Moses. You'll see about Moses in verses 17 through 43. You're like, wow, so much about Moses. There's a couple of reasons. Number one, 
He had been charged, Stephen had been, with rejecting Moses. And so he's like, nope, I haven't rejected Moses. Let's consider the life of Moses. And then secondly, don't get me wrong here, I'm not building up Moses more than we should because the problem is the Israelites were building Moses up more than they should, but the deal is this. Moses was kind of a big deal. Like God had a humongous plan for Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. God used Moses in incredible ways, and ultimately Moses, in the ways that God used him, would point to the true deliverer that was coming eventually, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So there's a huge section about the life of Moses found in verses 17 through 43. You'll see at the beginning of that text, around verse 17 or verse 18, it says that the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they were beginning to grow in number. It says in 17, they increased and they multiplied in Egypt. And then it says Pharaoh began to get scared. And so what does Pharaoh do? He, he forces the parents to abandon their kids. Uh, an infant son is born and he wants them dead. So he has them abandon them so that the boy won't grow up, so they won't get stronger and more powerful. And, and in the midst of all of this, what do we find out about Moses? We find out that God miraculously spared Moses. Are you familiar with Moses' story? He's born. The parents don't kill him. They, they put him in a basket. They float him down the Nile River. And luck be known, Pharaoh's daughter finds him. I don't really mean luck be known. Because there is no such thing as luck. It's God's sovereignty. God sovereignly allowed Moses in a basket of reeds to float down the Nile River to end up with Pharaoh's daughter and to be adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's house, raised in the wisdom of Egypt. And for 40 years, Moses lived in that manner. Then the text continues. It says at age 40, he began to identify, and probably before then, with his people Israel. He knew he was an Israelite. He knew that God had plans for Israel. He somehow knew that God was going to use him to deliver the people of Israel. And so he shows up one day down there where, his, uh, where, two of the, uh, where some of his brothers were. And one of the Egyptians is abusing and doing wrongly to him. And Moses defends the, the, the Hebrew brother by killing the Egyptian. Well, the next day, the, the Hebrews find out about this, and they're scared of him, and they reject Moses, God's chosen one to deliver them, and they reject him, and Moses hightails it out of there, and he runs to a place called Midian, and he lived in Midian as an exile for 40 years. And then here he is at age 80. If you're 80 years old, God's not done with you yet. Here he is at 80 years old. And God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And he says, Moses, go down to Egypt. I'm going to use you because I want to deliver my people. I'm sending you to deliver them. And then we find out that Moses led the people of Israel out of captivity. And God used him to do wonders and signs along the way. And then we find them at, the Mount, uh, at Mount Sinai. And it says that God gave them living oracles. These are the Ten Commandments. These are the laws. These are the instructions for life. And yet, while God's doing that very thing, what do the Israelites do? They reject Moses. They say, we want to go back to Egypt. They say, Aaron, who is Moses' brother, would you please build us a calf? 
Would you make us a golden calf so we can worship because that's our God and we will follow the calf. They're rejecting Moses and they're rejecting God. As I said a moment ago, as important as Moses is, he's simply pointing to the true deliverer. Look at verse 37. It describes Moses. It describes Moses in 37. It says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. A Messiah is coming. Then we leave this section of Moses and we get to the last section, which is verses 44 through 50. And it's all about the tabernacle, or it says here, the tent of witness, which is the same thing as the tabernacle. As they wandered through the wilderness, they would have the tabernacle to worship the Lord. And I love what it says. They said they built the tabernacle according to God's specifications. They followed him and did exactly as he said. And then it says that Joshua took the the, the tent of meeting the 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 tabernacle when they went into the promised land and then finally we make our way to Canaan to the promised land God gives it to the people of Israel because he does the work and he dispossesses the land and they're able to settle there and then it finishes with David asking God can I build you a temple God says no you can't but Solomon will And God allows them to build a temple. But in this scenario, unlike the tabernacle, it says that they built it with their hands. God's instructions weren't given because God allowed the temple, but they weren't, they missed the point. They really were supposed to have stayed ideally with the tabernacle because that's how God had designed it all along. And then Isaiah quotes God. You see here in verses uh, 49 and 50, a quotation from the prophet. This prophet is Isaiah. It's found in chapter 66. And God says that heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. You can't build me a house that can't stay where you built things. Did not my hand make all these things? So, lots of history here. And you're like, okay, Alan. Stephen responded with history. Why did he do that? We read the verses about history, and now you've summed up the history. What's all of this about? I'm glad you asked that one, too. I'm going to put on the screen a map. And I know that the map is not completely visible everywhere where you are, where the wording is, but hopefully it'll appear. Nope, the map. Okay. Is the map going to show up or no? Okay. All right. There's not a map. So um, if it does show up, pop it up on the screen. That'd be great. Uh, So throughout the text this morning, we have seen many uh, different places. If if there's a map, give me a thumbs up because the light changed and I didn't know if it was up or not. All right. So um, throughout the text, there are many different places mentioned, and almost none of those places are Canaan or the promised land. All right. Good deal. We're there. Thank you, guys. All right. So I want y'all to see. I'm going to use this pointer here. All right. See right over here. This is Canaan which is the promised land, which is just a tiny area right here, all right? So then everywhere where there's like a reddish color or whatever color that is, a maroonish color, uh, is a place that's mentioned in the text. So the first place that's mentioned is Mesopotamia, which is up here north, and that area is where it says that Abraham was. Abraham had God appear to him while he was in Mesopotamia. Notice his proximity. It is way from the promised land. It is way up here. And God appeared to Abraham there. 
And then after that, it says that he left the land of the Chaldeans, which is Chaldea right here, and it says that he moved up to Haran right up here, all right? So he's still a long way from Canaan. God's at work. God's making promises. God is declaring him to be chosen by him, and it's not happening right there in the promised land. And then while God is talking to Moses, I mean to, to uh, Abraham, he says, I'm going to send your people down to another land, which is Egypt, this area right here. <clears throat> this is where they're going to go. They're going to be sojourners there. They're going to be there for 400 years. And then he says that after they get there, it said that all of the patriarchs died and they were buried in Shechem. The word is over here, but the dot is right there near the end in Canaan. The thing you need to know about that is that Shechem technically is not in Judea. It is in Samaria, the dreaded area where they didn't like. So they're, they're buried not in the homeland. They're buried in Canaan. And then it says that after Moses fled for his life, he went to Midian, which is this area right here, and he lived there in exile for 40 years. And then whenever he leads the people out, or actually, let me rephrase that, when God appears to him in the wilderness of Sinai, right in this area, that's where the burning bush happens. Again, notice it's not in the promised land. Then whenever he leads the people out, God does work in the life of Moses in the Red Sea, which extends all the way up here as well, but this is the Red Sea. He does work in Egypt with Moses, and then in the wilderness near Mount Sinai. And then ultimately, the living oracles, or the Ten Commandments, are given to Moses in Mount Sinai, not the Promised Land. And then finally, eventually, after 40 years in the wilderness, they end up in the Promised Land. You're like, okay, Alan, why the geography lesson? Well, the reason that I believe that Stephen told the story like he did was because he told everything that God did everywhere but right there in the promised land saying, guys, you've missed the point. God is so much bigger than one place. God is so much bigger than one city. God is so much bigger than one temple. If God can work in Mesopotamia, he can work in Podunk City, USA. God is at work all over the map. And so he says, guys, God chose us. We're the chosen people. That's a good thing. But he's at work all over the world. So, now, let us get to the text we haven't read. Stephen has set it up. He's told the story. I envision, I don't know whether I'm right or not, but I envision that for the most part, the people that are listening to Stephen have been nodding their head in agreement and have been fine with what he has said. They will not be fine in just a moment. Because he turns the mirror and he says, hey guys, the part of our history that you don't like, you are doing it. Guys, I'm asking for you to look into God's word this morning. Do not be presumptuous. Some of us, yes, we're following God. I'm not saying that all of us are sinners ready. To, I mean, we, are, we are all sinners, sorry. That all of us are on our way to hell today. I'm saying some of us have trusted in Jesus. Some of us are following him. Some of us kind of have it, for the most part, together. But many of us who think we have it together, perhaps we don't have it together as much as we think we do. And perhaps God's word is turning a mirror on us today. And the question is, could we be doing some of the same things that Stephen says they're doing, all right? Let's look at Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53. If you thought his answer was rather mild to begin with, it kind of was. If you think his answer is mild now, you'll be completely wrong. Here's what he says in 
51 and following. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. Come back next week, you're going to find out just how much they hated it. They did not like his answer. If you want to read beforehand, that's great. We're looking at verses 54 through 60 next Sunday morning. But what he has done is he said, hey guys, I've told you the history of our people, but I think you've missed the main point. And now I want you to hear the word of the Lord that it's time for you to repent or continue to follow the ways of your fathers, which is not the way you should be going. Guys, this morning we're confronted with the same choice. Are we going to continue for some of us to resist the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Or are we going to repent and allow him to do his work? I want you to see the pronoun change. I know there's a lot of conversation right now about pronouns. It's a different kind of pronoun change here that I'm referring to. But in the beginning of the text, verses 1 through 50, I said there were like 10 times that he said our father or our fathers. Look at his last uh, three verses. He doesn't say our anywhere. He says you and your fathers. He points his finger right at him and says you are doing this, you are doing this, you are doing this, you are doing this five times. And then he refers not to our fathers but your fathers and he does that twice. What he's setting up is this chart that's on your, on your outline as well as on um, the screen. On the left hand side you can either choose to rebel against God or on the right hand side you can choose to follow him. So I've got the rebel side filled in, and I'd love for you to consider filling in the follow side as we get through that section as well. And here's the deal. There have been always those who have remained faithful to God and followed Jesus. And there have always been those who have rebelled against God and done the complete opposite. And in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 through 53, he's saying, guys that are listening to me, you are rebelling against God. It's time to change your ways and begin to follow him. He points his finger at the Sanhedrin and he says, it's you, not me, that's guilty. You said that I was against God and Moses. I'm not. You are. You said I'm against the temple and the law and the custom. I am not. You are against the law of God. Needless to say, they were none too happy at what he said. The things that he lists are there on the, on the chart. He says, you're stubborn, you're hard-hearted, you're resisting the Holy Spirit, you're rejecting God's grace, you're ignoring God's word. I want to kind of define each of those a little bit. That first one says, you're stubborn. The word that he uses in verse 51 is, he says, you are, um, you are stiff-necked people. You're a stiff-necked people. What? I think you can picture what stiff-necked means, right? Headstrong, obstinate, difficult Make it hard on leaders. I've got a bulldog in my house, and whenever I want him to go somewhere and he doesn't want to go, and I grab that collar, the collar just comes right off his neck, and he stays behind, right? Because he's hard to lead. When he wants his way, he's a sweet dog. He's not going to hurt me. He's not going to harm me. He's not going to bark at me. He's not going to growl at me. He's not going to bite me. He may lick me. He's not going to do what I want him to do at times. He's, he's stiff-necked. 
Guys, all too often we treat God the same way. God says, come with me this way. And we're like, nope, no, thank you. I like it right here. God goes, no, for real, come with me. Nope, like it right here. God grabs that collar, and we say, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to put my rear on the ground, and that collar may come off, but I ain't going with you, God. I want to be careful how I say this, but it's true. Not only were they stiff-necked towards God, they were stiff-necked towards God's chosen leaders, and they rejected Moses. We are a church full of wonderful people, and yet we also are people, and if we don't guard ourselves, we can actually make it hard on the leaders that God has in place here, the staff, the elders, the deacons, by being obstinate and stiff-necked and refusing to do what we should be doing, we could be stubborn and set in our ways. God, it's time for us to stop being stiff-necked and stubborn and say yes to God and say yes to the leadership that he's using in this church. Again, I'm not saying in a passive-aggressive way, because I think we're a horrible church. No, I think we're a wonderful church. I'm just saying, if we're not careful, the very best of us can become obstinate and stiff-necked. The next thing we see here is that they are hard-hearted. The way it says in here is uncircumcised in heart and ears. I think we pretty much all know what circumcision is, right? It's cutting away of the skin, right, when a, a boy is born. So whenever it says that they're uncircumcised by their heart and their ears, it means they're hard-hearted. It's as if their hearts and their ears, spiritually speaking, are covered. They're closed off to God and to his instruction. They're not listening to God whatsoever. That's why they're stiff-necked. Or perhaps that's why they are hard-hearted, because they are stiff-necked. The third thing that we see, they resist the Holy Spirit, which is a result of the first two things. Or maybe the resisting the Holy Spirit causes the other two. They're all married together, right? It's a continual opposing, fighting against the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and in the lives of others. All too often, Baptist churches have resisted the Holy Spirit. We, we don't want the, the messiness of the Holy Spirit. Guys, the Holy Spirit, he is one of the Trinity. He is part of the Trinity. He is just as much God forever and ever as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit speaks to us and works in our lives. I have a dear friend of mine that I just spoke to in the hallway this morning. I know she listens to the Holy Spirit. We were having a conversation about what should I do about this or that. She shared with me what she was doing, and I said, I have every confidence to believe you because I know that you love Jesus, you're following him, you're following the prompting of his Holy Spirit, and you're doing the best you know to do with what you're trying to decide here. All too often, here's how we make decisions. It's what I want. It's what's best for me. It's my preference. I kind of like this. I'm kind of comfortable. In other words, we squat down, we're stubborn, we're stiff-necked, and we resist the Holy Spirit. Guys, it's time for us as individuals and as a church family to stop, to, sorry, it's time for us to start listening to the Holy Spirit and stop ignoring him. Follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. That means when he says there's sin in your life, say, God, remove it from me. Circumcise it out of me. You're like, oh, but Alan, I'm not a sinner. I'm not like those sinners. I didn't ask you if you were like those sinners. You know why we so many times like to have our little soapbox of the sin that we're wanting to preach about? It's because either we're doing it and we don't want anybody else to know that we're doing it and so we're trying to avoid it, or 
Maybe we got that under control, but these 140 million over here, we don't. So if I focus on those, then I feel good about myself. Guys, we've got to listen to the Holy Spirit. If you want to rebel against God, then ignore him all day long. But don't ignore him if you want to follow him. Number four, says they reject God's grace. You're like, okay, where, where's that at? Where, where did you find that? All throughout the text, but specifically in verses 52, when it says you've killed, you've persecuted the prophets, you've killed the prophets, you've not listened to them, you haven't heard when they said that the righteous one, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was coming, and then you've killed and murdered and betrayed him. What he's saying is God has extended his grace. He sent those to you to tell you that the Messiah is coming. Trust in him, follow him, believe him. Here is the grace, and you've refused it. You've wiped it off the planet. You've killed him to dismiss it. You've done the same thing with the Messiah. If we're not careful, we will fight against every ounce of grace that God gives to us and avoid it. Time and time again, God sends deliverers to put them on the right path. They reject them and do their own thing. And ultimately, it says they killed the righteous one. Who is the righteous one? Jesus, the Messiah. Why is he called the righteous one? To be righteous means to be in right standing with God. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He is the righteous one because he never sinned. He is the righteous one because he is the one that makes a way for us to be righteous because we can have his righteousness placed upon us. So he is the righteous one because he lived it out and he's the righteous one because he provides a way for us to experience it. Scripture is clear all throughout the scripture from beginning to end that all of us are stiff-necked people. All of us are rebels. All of us are enemies of God. All of us are telling God, I'm on the throne of my life and I'm doing things my way and you don't need to tell me what to do. But because of our sin, it separates us eternally forever and ever from a holy, righteous, perfect God. God is the righteous one. He can have nothing to do with sin. But the amazing, incredible good news is God said, I've got a plan. In fact, God had that plan before the foundations of the world. He wasn't caught off guard. He didn't set the last minute and go, oh my goodness, I've got to find a solution. No, he knew all along he would send his son, Jesus. Why did he send the righteous one? Why did he send his son? Why did he send God in the flesh? Jesus came to live a perfect life that none of us can live. Die a death that we deserve. And by his grace, by trusting in his forgiveness of our sins, we can be made righteous as well. So, uh, Bill, you'll have to forgive me. I didn't ask ahead of time. Y'all, we, sh we should be praying for the Edison's a dear friend of ours, Weta, passed away this week. And as I was in the hospital room with Bill and with Weta and the family, while we grieved that loss, we all celebrated that because she knows the righteous one, her suffering and pain is over, and she is in his presence today. But here's the kicker. 
This wasn't like, which a deathbed, genuine repentance to Jesus is just as good as repentance at an early age. But this was not a deathbed repentance. You know Weta, she loved Jesus with all her heart for years and years and years and years and years. And she knew the righteous one throughout her life. And so whenever she got ready to go home and be with Jesus, she was looking forward to it. Guys, you can know the righteous one as well. As amazing of a woman as Weta is, she is not in the presence of God because of anything she did rather because of the righteous one who died in her place. We got ready for VBS, and uh, Weta was already in the hospital, and she had talked to Howard looking for a way where she could come to VBS so she could sit with the kids and tell them about Jesus another time. Guys, the righteous one is the ultimate one who brings us grace and deliverance. As incredible as Moses' work to deliver the people out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land, as much as you and I would have loved that experience, it's worthless if we don't trust in the righteous one, Jesus Christ himself. And what he's saying is you've rejected God's grace. The last thing that's on your list is he's ignoring. They said, he said, you've ignored his word. Look at verse uh, 53. It says, you've received the law, but you did not keep it. You did not observe it. You did not guard it. You did not protect it. You did not continue to obey his word. He says, God gave you directly from himself living oracles by which you are to live your life, and yet you refused to listen or follow those words. So do you know what Stephen said in those three verses? Here's what it is in a nutshell. Basically he's saying, Stephen is saying, you are unfaithful, you are unbelieving, and you don't know God. You see, these people, they were proud. They were proud of being children of Abraham, but they didn't live like it. They venerated and looked up to Moses because Moses is the one that God sent to deliver them. But while they were lifting up Moses, they totally missed the Messiah who was the true deliverer. And they were focused on the minutia of the law and following it exactly to the letter and adding to it. But they missed out on the lawgiver, God. See, they were centering their lives around the temple. But they didn't realize that while they were centering their lives around the temple, they were putting God in a box. And they were saying, God, you can stay in the temple, but don't leave and go anywhere else. They were missing the point. They were rebelling against God. In the wilderness, it says that they made a golden calf and they sacrificed to it and they worshipped it. All along the way, all along the way, they were rebelling against God. I want you to look at one thing with me. Verse 41. In verse 41, when it's describing the golden calf that they made, it says, and they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to that idol, and it finishes by saying they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. How foolish is this? How self-centered is this? They're not worshiping a golden calf, they're worshiping themselves. 
They're rejoicing in the work of their hands. All too often, what we're doing with whatever idol we may be worshiping is worshiping ourselves. So I've got a question to ask you. The question is, are you, it's on the, on, on the handout, are you rebelling against Jesus or are you following him? See, they were rebelling against God, uh, against God and they were subtly rebelling against him in some ways and they were oblivious to what they were doing. If we're not careful, we can do the same thing. We can think we're good because, you know what, I'm a good person. I mean, I don't have a golden calf in my bedroom. I'm not worshiping a golden calf like those foolish people. Okay, maybe you don't have a golden calf. I don't think any of us probably do, but we have the equivalent of a golden calf. We're worshiping something. We're worshiping our, either worshiping the righteous one or our own thing. You may be thinking, well, I'm not like them. I wasn't there when Jesus was killed. I'm not like them because I know my Bible. But the question is, are you genuinely, fully following Jesus or are you living in rebellion? See, there's no middle ground. Either you're rebelling against God or you're following him. You can't say, well, I'm just kind of in the middle. Like, I'm sometimes doing this, sometimes doing that. I'm a pretty good, okay, all right kind of guy. No, are you rebelling against God or are you following him? Are you following the Holy Spirit or are you resisting him? Are you living by God's word or are you ignoring God's word? So how do we protect against rebellion? You might want to jot down on the follow side of the chart with some of these things. How do you combat or fight against stubbornness? We do that by putting ourselves on the potter's wheel every day and allowing God to shape us and form us. We do that by being humble before God. We do that by being humble before the leaders that he places in our lives that are a part of our church family. Okay, so how do we combat hard-heartedness? How do we combat this idea of having uh, uncircumcised hearts or, or, or ears? Turn with me to uh, Hebrews, or look on the screen anyway, at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Here's what it says about the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you want your heart and your ears to be circumcised, then allow the Word of God to penetrate your life and cut away the parts that need to be cut loose. Do you study God's Word to say, yep, I studied God's Word? Or do you study God's word to apply it to your lives, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your life and to change and correct the places that need to be corrected? We see that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Allow it to do its work in your life and thereby you can be dealing with the hard-heartedness in your life. As far as resisting the Holy Spirit, allow him to infiltrate every area of your life. Be responsive when he leads you. Follow the Holy Spirit in a small step and he'll give you more leadership. How do we deal with ignoring God's grace? We do that by receiving his grace for the salvation in our lives, saying yes to Jesus for forgiveness of our sins and then to be responsive to him as he leads us and acknowledge our need for his grace, not only for salvation, but for continuing to follow him day by day. What do we do as far as um, avoiding ignoring his word? 
I want to encourage you to study God's word. I want to encourage you to apply it to your life. All of these things, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to combat against the rebellion that's in your life and in my life, it needs to be done in community with other believers in Jesus Christ. And this church family is the place to do that. And the ideal place to do it within this church family is to jump in a hope group where you can be in a smaller group and you can identify these things and say, you know what, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm rebelling in these ways. Would you pray alongside of me? encourage you to consider not only consider but to take the step of joining in a hope group today so i was studying the text this week i ran across a commentary by r kent hughes and i'm going to read exactly from his words of how he applied some of this it says stephen knew his bible and his bible history as stephen stood before the council he brought the theology of christ down hard on the three great pillars of popular Judaism. And these three pillars are land, law, and temple. He says these three false bases for confidence before God. Those things are all important, but if we're not careful, we have our confidence in those things instead of in God. He not only attacked these three sacred cows, he took them by the horns and he turned them belly up. He says, what does all this have to say to us today? How does the section about the land apply to us? Here's what he says. It is possible to imagine that since we live in a privileged nation like the United States where so much good has been done and so many godly people are reared, we will surely inherit God's blessing. Don't get me wrong. I want the United States to follow Jesus, but we're not the only nation in this world. Don't get me wrong. I'm proud that I live in the United States, but we are not Israel. Don't get me wrong. I love that I live in Texas, but this is not the promised land. God is bigger than a piece of land. Let's keep going. The law. Here's what Hugh says about the law. He says, sometimes we, like the Jews of old, make a fetish out of God's word. We carry it with us. We mark it appropriately. We thumb it piously. But we fail to let it take root in our hearts. Don't get me wrong. Study God's word. Don't get me wrong, highlight and underline. Don't get me wrong, memorize God's word. But please don't neglect the application of God's word in your life. And then the temple, here's what he says. It's easy to suppose that since we go to the place where God has chosen to meet his people, we'll receive special blessings. Don't get me wrong, Sunday mornings, you should be here. We should worship together in the month of August at 10 a.m. and beginning in September at 10.30 a.m., don't forget. But this is not where God solely resides. He resides, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, in our hearts and our lives. The land does not bring redemption. The law does not bring redemption. The temple does not bring redemption. Only Jesus brings redemption. Don't miss him. This morning, we're going to have a time of response, and we're going to do it a little bit differently today. We're going to have an offering, but not yet. We're going to have the Lord's Supper while we're going to prepare, I should say, for the Lord's Supper while we sing these next two songs. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in prayer. After the prayer is over with, we will sing. We'll stand. We'll sing some songs. I'll be available to pray with you at the front. The altar's open for you to come and pray here. 
At the same time, some tables, two in the front and two in the back, will be open for the Lord's Supper. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted in him for salvation, then you are invited to take part in the Lord's Supper. Here's what I'm asking you to do. You would get it at some point in the next two songs. Don't take it. We'll take it together as a family at the end. I'll let you know when that time comes. And if you have kids that are in children's worship or fusion that you want to bring to be a part of that because they're followers of Jesus, you can grab them quickly and bring them down here and participate as well. But what we're wanting to do is to make sure that we utilize this time to reflect on our own lives and our own hearts. You see, Stephen preached a message that the people were pretty much okay with, and then he turned the mirror and he said, you, you're the ones that are stubborn, obstinate, resisting the Lord, not following his word, ignoring his word, ignoring his work in your life. My question for you this morning is, are you that way in your life? What sin does God need to cut out this morning? What thing do you need to confess what difficulty do you need to bring to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know, I don't think this is a sin issue. I just need rescuing. I need deliverance from this. Would you bring it to me, Lord? Maybe you need to come and pray with me or pray at the altar. And then as you prepare your hearts, you may pick up the Lord's supper elements and take them to your seat. As you do that, I want to read a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. And Paul is talking about the Lord's supper and as he gives them instructions, here's what he says. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with this world. This morning, as you prepare for the Lord's Supper, this morning, as you reflect on the truth of God's Word, as we've looked at in Acts chapter 7, I call all of us to judge ourselves truly, lest we be judged by the Lord. And when we are judged by the Lord, that we would see it, that it's His discipline so that we won't be condemned. Let me lead us in a word of prayer, and the worship team will make their way this direction.